We'll be in Acts 21, starting in verse 17. Um, and if you don't have a Bible or you just didn't happen to bring it with you, um, there's a white paper back in the pew in front of you. Um, it's the ESV version. It's the version that I'd read out of um, and what Jim will preach out of. And we'll be on page 542. Again, it's Acts 21. We'll be starting in verse 17. This is what the word of the Lord says. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. We are confronted with something this morning that it's uncomfortable to be confronted with. You know, the Apostle Paul is one of our spiritual heroes as believers, but we get to see some of his flesh, his sinfulness exposed before us this morning, an unwise decision that he made. So we'll see that exposed before us this morning. And as we see that, as the pictures that we might have in our mind of the Apostle Paul with a halo around his head, uh, that halo will get knocked off this morning. And as we see that, I hope that we realize that the only one who is holy is God. And the only righteousness that any of us can claim, including the Apostle Paul, is the righteousness of Christ which He has given us. So we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. In our passage this morning, we, we are getting our first real look at the church at Jerusalem 
that we've had for many chapters. It's been all the way, all the way back since Acts chapter 15 that we had any real in-depth look at the church at Jerusalem. Well, here we find ourselves. Paul has traveled, has finished his missionary journeys, and he's, he's arrived in Jerusalem. So we get to have an in-depth look, snapshot of what had happened and what was going on in the church at Jerusalem. If we remember from what we looked at before about the church at Jerusalem, the church at Jerusalem had fantastic numbers. If they turned in their annual church profile, if they had an annual church profile to turn in, buddy, they would make the cover of On Mission magazine. They had all the people. They had all kinds of great numbers. They had all of those attendance kind of things. But there's no evidence that the church at Jerusalem was sending out missionaries. We just finished looking at the church at Ephesus and the impact that they had on all of Asia Minor. There's no indication that the church at Jerusalem was doing those kinds of things. They weren't raising up disciples and sending out disciples. There's no record of them doing anything to reach any anyone other than their Jerusalem and their Judea. There's no evidence of them reaching out to their Samaria and the ends of the earth like Jesus called us to. There's not even any indication of the church of Jerusalem financially supporting other churches. As a matter of fact, what we see all throughout the book of Acts is that Paul was everywhere he would go, every church that he would plant, and when he would go back and visit those churches, he would collect offerings to take back to Jerusalem. Not the other way around. Now, the idea was that he would collect those offerings, he would bring them back to Jerusalem, and then the church of Jerusalem would disperse them amongst the churches as was needed. But there's no real evidence of that part of it happening. The Jerusalem church had grown into this huge church. As a matter of fact, you could say that it was the first megachurch. It had grown into this huge church, but it had not grown into an on-mission church. See, how a church grows, I think, is much more important than how big it grows. And I think we see that with the church at Acts. The church at Jerusalem had grown in a big way, but it hadn't grown in the right way. So if it wasn't growing in the right way, how was it growing? Our passage this morning shows us that the church at Jerusalem, at least from Acts 15 on, the church at Jerusalem had been growing by accommodation instead of transformation. Now we'll talk if that, you know, phrase goes over your head, we'll talk more about that as we go along. But in Romans chapter 12 verse 2, the Bible makes it clear that when we're saved, we're to no longer be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're to be changed. We're not to be conformed to the methods and plans and things of the world. But we're to be changed. We're to be transformed. That wasn't happening in Jerusalem. Instead of the, the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem, instead of them being transformed by the free grace of Christ, they were being conformed back into their legalistic, their, their, their self-righteous past. They were being more influenced by the rules of the Pharisees than they were being transformed into the likeness of Christ. They were still trying to follow Old Testament law 
and they were still trying to follow all of the pharisaical additions to the law. That was how they would consider themselves to be, quote, good Christians if they followed the law on top of Jesus. They demanded all those things of themselves, but not only did they demand those things of themselves, they would look at other people through that lens as well, and they would demand that of the Gentiles as well. What they were doing, they were holding on to this old temple mindset. If you, if you've ever studied the way that the temple was set up, in the temple there was an area where only the Jews could go. Now, of course, they had the inner court and the Holy of Holies and all that, but the main part of the temple was restricted to Jews only. The court outside of the temple was called the court of the Gentiles. Matter of fact, they had on the wall that separated the court of the Gentiles and, and where the good people could go, they had warning signs that promised death if they crossed that line. These Jewish Christians, they were still holding on to that mindset that, well, you know, you can be a Christian. You can come to the temple. You can be a Christian, but only the good ones get to go. Only the Jewish ones. Only the ones who follow the Jewish law get to really participate. Oh, it's wonderful that those Gentile dogs were getting saved. Just so long as when they got saved, they started acting like good Jews, like they're supposed to. That's what we see in the first part of our passage. Look at, look at verses 17 through 22. Starting in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, we, Paul, Luke, and the others, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers, these brothers is speaking of the, uh, the, the, the leadership group of the church in Jerusalem. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. James was basically, we would call him the senior pastor of the church. Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders, all the co-pastors were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. They've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So when Paul and the, uh, Paul and Luke and the others, when they show up in Jerusalem, the initial greeting that they get, man, it's just like a celebration. They're, they're received warmly that first day. But then they stay overnight and the next day they meet with the leadership of the church, James and the, and the co-pastors of the church. Now, we don't know according to scripture a whole lot about the governance of the church of Jerusalem, but history tells us that the church of Jerusalem had patterned their governance after the Sanhedrin, after the Jewish Sanhedrin. And if indeed they did that, and history seems pretty accurate in telling us that, if they did that, then there were 70 of these elders, 70 basically pastors of the church at Jerusalem with the 71st, James, functioning in somewhat of a high priestly role. Well, that was who Paul was addressing, these 71 
members, these 70 elders and James. This was this leadership crew that he was addressing. That was who he was telling how much the gospel had impacted all of these Gentile lands and how all of these Gentile people were getting saved and how all these church plants, churches were being planted in Gentile lands and how all of Asia had heard the gospel. Can you imagine how, I mean, it excites me just telling you about it. Can you imagine, anytime that somebody asks me how things are going on at Parkview, they probably regret it within just a few minutes because I'm just so excited and I want to, I want to go on and on and on about all the things that, that the Lord is doing. And that's probably the way Paul was when he was addressing this group. He was just so excited about what the Lord was doing. But in the middle of that, as soon as he just pours out his heart and is expecting them to join in praising God for what he's doing, they pour cold water on it. They pour cold water right on Paul. Yeah, you know, yeah, Paul, man, that's, that's really exciting that God's doing some good stuff with those Gentile people. But look at what he's doing here. Those are the pastors that I don't hang around with much, you know. You're, you're getting excited talking about what the Lord's doing. They're saying, oh, you know, that's great, but Brother, what are you running? We're running this and we're running that. And that's exactly what James and these folks were doing. They were saying, you know, that's great what he's doing with these Gentile believers. But look at what he's doing amongst the Jews. Thousands of Jews are, are getting saved. And the best thing about when all these Jews get saved, buddy, they're the right kind of Christians. <laughs> they're zealous for the law. They know how to act right. They've had the right kind of upbringing. They live right. They act right. They're, they're not all tatted up. They don't wear their hats in church. They know how to dress. Matter of fact, Paul, you know what we're hearing is you're telling these people when they, these, you know, Gentile people, when they get saved, you're telling them that they don't have to follow the law. That's got some of our good Christian Jewish folks, that's got some of them pretty riled up when they hear that. Now let's just stop there for a minute. Was Paul telling the Gentiles that they no longer had to follow, that they didn't have to follow the commandments of the Old Testament? Was Paul telling them that they didn't have to follow the Ten Commandments? Of course he wasn't. He was telling me that they didn't have to do that to be saved, but if they were saved, they're going to live according to the way that Jesus commands us to live. That's what Paul was telling them. Paul told them that grace freed them from the bondage of the law, that they were no longer slaves to the law. And since they were no longer slaves to the law, they didn't have to follow any of the ceremonial laws that the Jews had to follow, like circumcision and all of the temple stuff and sacrifices. They didn't have to follow any of that because they were freed from the bondage of the law. But he wasn't telling them that they could forsake the law and live however they wanted to live. As a matter of fact, Paul says, may it never be when he was accused of that. So what they were accusing Paul of, they were, was a lie. It was a lie based on gossip that they had heard. 
There were, there was all of this rumor mongering and all of this gossip that was surrounding Paul and it came back to James and the fellow pastors at the church at Jerusalem and instead of dismissing it as gossip, they believed it. They took it in. You know, as a pastor, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, you know, preacher, you know what they're saying. You know what people are talking about. I thank God it's only happened maybe a couple of times since I've been here, but I just want to warn you, just friendly little warning. If you ever come to me and you say that, the first thing I'm going to say is, well, okay, go get them, whoever they are, and we'll talk about it. Don't carry their water because then that's gossip. Let's talk about it and we'll clear things up directly. Well, James and the other pastors at the church of Jerusalem, they didn't do that. They didn't do that, did they? They hid behind the unknown they. They are saying that you are doing this, Paul. Instead of addressing those malicious gossips head on, they accommodated the gossips and came against Paul. And when they accommodated the gossips and they came against Paul, then they came up with a, quote, solution. And that solution was going to, was, was to, for Paul to accommodate the legalists and to accommodate the gossips even more than had already happened. Look at verses 23 through 25 to see this accommodation that they came up with. This is James speaking to Paul. He says, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in obedience to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we sent them a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what's been strangled and for sex, from sexual immorality. That's the letter. He's referring to the letter that they sent back in Acts chapter 15. He said, oh, we, we already, we already handled them, but here's how you need to accommodate these people in Jerusalem. Listen, folks, that's a, that's a terrible plan. It's a terrible plan. Here's what they were saying. They were saying, Paul, if, if you want our support, then you're going to have to do things our way. And when you do things our way, what that means is you're going to have to give a public demonstration to show people that you're still a good law-abiding Jew. So the public demonstration that they came up with, and it's hard to imagine that they didn't already have this set up, but you know that's going beyond the text, so that's just speculation. But the demonstration that they came up with was for Paul to help these four guys fill their Nazarite vow. Now, we've talked about Nazarite vow a couple of times before. We don't have to go into details about it. If you're really curious and you want to know the details about a Nazarite vow, just write number six off in your margin, and you can go back and you can study that this afternoon. There's no football on. The racing hasn't started yet. So number six can be what you do this afternoon. But that lays out all of the laws and all of the requirements for this Nazarite vow. What would happen was for a certain period of time, typically maybe a month up to six months, some folks did it for a lifetime. Samson, John the Baptist, um, uh, Eli, were, were uh, I'm sorry, not Eli, Samuel, 
Those were under Nazarite vows from birth. But what they would do was for this period of time, they would separate from grape, grape products, anything, grape juice, wine, anything like that, even vinegar, and they wouldn't cut their hair. So everybody could tell when, you know, a long-haired Jew was walking around, it was somebody that was under this Nazarite vow, long-haired, unshaven um, Jew. Now, Paul wasn't even opposed to somebody taking a Nazarite vow. We saw that back in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 is pretty evident that Paul himself took a Nazarite vow. He didn't fulfill all the things that number six said he had to do. He didn't go back to the temple. But he wasn't opposed to that. He just used that as a time like we would use fasting to set yourself apart for the Lord. But in order to appease these legalistic Judaizers who were giving the accusation in Jerusalem, in order to appease them, these pastors told Paul to help these four men fulfill their Nazarite vow. And he gave, and, and James gave Paul very specific instructions as to what he needed to do to make that happen. He said, first, you need to purify yourself according to the law. Now, let's peel that back a little bit. What did Paul need to purify himself from? See, according to custom, according to the pharisaical additions to the law, if a Jew spent significant time outside of Jerusalem, spent significant time in Gentile land, before he could go into the temple, he had to purify himself of those nasty Gentiles. So he needed to get, they were telling him, he needs to get all of that off of you before you go into the temple. Talk about an attitude that's contrary to the gospel. They were telling them, they were telling him that in order to accommodate these Jewish believers, he needed to ceremonially separate himself from the Gentiles. He needed to ceremoniously separate himself from those he had been ministering to, those he had been witnessing to, those he had been planting churches, even those he had been traveling with. But that wasn't the only thing. They told him to purify himself according to the law, but they also told him that he'd have to pay the expenses for himself and for the other four men. And now that wasn't, that's not just something to breeze your way over. That was a significant expense. Because those expenses to pay your way out of this Nazarite vow included, um, included three animal offerings plus grain and drink offerings for each person. For each of the four people. Now that was going to be expensive. And it wasn't like, you know, Paul had an ATM card that he could just go plug in to, to draw from his endless bank account. No, Paul didn't have these resources on his own, but he was carrying a bag of money with him. Romans 15 makes it clear that Paul came to Jerusalem with money that the churches had collected to be given to the poor in the church at Jerusalem. So he was carrying a missions offering with him. James and the other pastors, they knew that that was the only money that he had and they were requiring him to pay this significant expense out of mission money. Take away from that 
and you do this so that you can show yourself to be worthy to accommodate these legalists in their midst. But here's the worst part of it all. The worst part of it all is that Paul went along with it. Look at verse 26. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. And one of the things that I love about Scripture, when, when people attack Scripture and say that it's a collection of myth stories and those kinds of things, they don't know what they're talking about. They haven't read it. Because if somebody was going to make up a myth story about the Apostle Paul, they wouldn't have included this. One of the things I love about Scripture is it includes warts and all. And it includes this one with the Apostle Paul. You know, as we read Scripture, we see that as godly as Abraham was, he messed up, didn't he? As godly as Moses was, he messed up. As godly as James was, he messed up. As godly as Paul was, (laughs) he messed up. James messed up here in the way that he was growing the Jerusalem church by accommodating sin, by accommodating legalistic Judaizers in their midst. And Paul messed up in the way that he accommodated James by following that leadership. We always need to remember that no matter who we're looking at, whether it's a pastor or whether it's a, um, a saint of the past or whoever, we always need to remember that the best of men are men at best. And that applied to Paul as well. Paul, it's heartbreaking to think that Paul, in this act, he distanced himself from the Gentile believers that he had worked so hard to evangelize. Paul distanced himself from the Gentile churches that he'd worked so hard to plant. Later on in verse 29, we'll even see that Paul distanced himself from Trophimus. Trophimus was a Gentile believer who traveled all the way from Ephesus to be in Jerusalem with him. And Paul distanced himself from Trophimus. As bad as that is, the worst part of all was that in this act, Paul distanced himself and separated himself from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why did he do it? He did it to appease and to accommodate a particular group of people who were more focused on external appearances than real gospel transformation. They were more concerned about preserving their traditions and preserving their tastes and preserving their styles and preserving their personal preferences than they were in seeing people come to Jesus. The Jerusalem church was eager to accommodate believers who were Judaizers, who were pursuing the law. They even allowed and encouraged those Judaizers to keep the Jewish laws and to keep the customs as a way to prove what a good Christian they were. But they refused to accommodate Gentile believers. They refused to accommodate those believers who looked and talked and acted differently than they were. 
Oh yeah, those Gentile Christians, great that they believed. You know, they're not the good Christians like the Judaizers are. Here's the message that they were proclaiming. They were saying, oh, we're so thankful that you got saved. Now, if you want to be a good Christian, you need to look and act and talk and dress and vote and think and sing like us. Verses 27 through 36 show us that that never works. Now, that's a long passage. Uh, Jacob already read it. We're not going to go back and read that again. You can you can read it again. But that shows us clearly that that kind of accommodation never, ever works. Suffice it to say that things didn't turn out the way that James wanted them to turn out. Anytime you accommodate sin, anytime you accommodate a group within the church based on personal preferences, it never, ever works. Instead of Paul's actions accommodating those Judaizers, what it did, it just stirred them up. It emboldened them. It, it fired them up. They were so wrapped up in their gossip and, the, and their slander, anything that they saw fed into that narrative that they already had, whether it was true or not. Uh, they even lied about this and said, well, Paul, when he went into the temple, he obviously had a Gentile with him. No, he didn't. But it fed into their narrative, so they kept that up. They started with lies. They spread more lies. They kept lying until it absolutely stirred up a riot. That mob, that riotous mob of Jews and Jewish Christians just about beat Paul to death. But it's interesting how God does things. To rescue Paul from Jews and Jewish Christians... He used a couple of pagan Roman soldiers, not a couple, a couple hundred Roman soldiers to rescue him. That's probably one of the few times that Paul was thankful to be arrested. (laughs) It was because arresting him basically saved his life. Now, clearly, this section of Scripture that we just walked our way through, it describes an absolute train wreck. Just about everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. The leaders of the Jerusalem church, they were trying to hold their megachurch together by appeasing and by accommodating these different groups, these legalistic Judaizers in their midst. And Paul was trying to appease and trying to accommodate the Jerusalem church leadership by going along with what they told him to do. And it all blew up in their faces. So understanding that, just understanding that foundation, let me just give you a few quick observations about what was so wrong with what happened in this passage. First, if you have to go against the clear teachings of Scripture to accommodate a group of people within the church, it's wrong. Second, when certain people in the church start to see themselves as the good Christian people and start to look down on other believers in the church solely based on their external external appearances or their behaviors, those things that have nothing to do with sin, when that happens, it's wrong. Third observation. If Christian brothers and sisters are being excluded based on their ethnicity, based on their background, based on their upbringing, based on their taste, their style, or personal preferences, if they're being excluded to accommodate a group of people within the church, 
Buddy, that's wrong. Fourth observation. If a group of people in the church resorts to gossip and bullying to try to get somebody to appease and to accommodate their wants and their desires, then it's wrong. Fifth observation. If you have to divert mission giving to accommodate the wishes of a particular group inside the church, it's wrong. Any one of those could or should have gotten an amen. You have to understand it's, it's difficult to stand up against those things in a church when they happen. I thank God we haven't seen them here. And I pray that we don't. But when they do, it's difficult to stand up to them. But as difficult as it is, we have to do it. Not just me as the pastor, but we as the church have to stand up against those things. We can never accommodate those things. See, the reality is accommodating sin of any kind in the church, whether it's legalism or whether it's license, accommodating sin of any kind in the church never works. Well, you know, if, if we speak out about this, then, you know, that's going to make them mad and, and, you know, they can, uh, anytime we start thinking like that, that never works. It never works. It always breeds contempt, divisiveness, and either legalism or license. So let me just leave us with four points of application so we can prevent that kind of thing from ever happening here. The first point of application, first thing we need to do is we need to be rigid, absolutely immovable in carrying out all the truths and practices that we clearly see in Scripture. We can never budge an inch on that. Amen? The Bible is our all-sufficient guide to faith and practice. We cannot settle for anything less than what it tells us to do. But at the same time, we can't subject people to more than it says to do. Second, we can't confuse biblical truths and biblical commands, those things that we have to stand firmly on. We can't confuse those with our traditions and personal preferences. Another way to put it is, the Bible does not command the styles that you like or the styles that I like. The Bible does not command the preferences that I have or the preferences that you have. The Bible does not command our particular cultural hang-ups based on how we grew up or how we were raised or any of those things. The Bible doesn't command those things, so don't try to twist it to make it happen. Third, as Philippians 2 says, that's more homework for you, Philippians 2. As Philippians 2 says, within the fellowship of this church, we must always count others as more significant than ourselves. Think about how beautiful... Now, we, we get to, with the way that God's working in this church, we get to see a glimpse of that. But think how beautiful that would be fully played out when everybody thinks of everybody else as more significant than ourselves. 
See, when I think of you as more significant than me, then I don't try to ramrod my rights and preferences and ideas through. I get more joy out of seeing your rights and privileges and tastes exercise. See, one way that we can count others as more significant than ourselves is to not just tolerate, but to celebrate diverse traditions, backgrounds, tastes, styles, and preferences. If a particular style of preference gives you joy, then it should give me joy because it gives you joy, not because I particularly like it. Does that make sense? If you like the style or the taste or the preference of something that there's no scriptural one way or the other on it, if you like it, then it should absolutely give me joy that you like it, whether I like it or not. That's what it means to hold somebody else more significant than yourselves. Finally, if something in the church makes you uncomfortable, the first thing that you need to do is you need to ask yourself why. Run it through the grid of Scripture. Does this make me uncomfortable because it's contrary to Scripture, or does it make me uncomfortable just because I don't, I don't like it? By God's grace, we will never accommodate to things that are contrary to biblical teaching. But also, by God's grace, each of us will be challenged to accommodate to things that aren't our particular taste or style or preference. Because when we do that, then we're acting like Jesus. And that's what we're called to do. Philippians 2, verses 2 through 8 says, Complete my joy. Paul is telling the church at Philippi that you will fulfill my joy when you are of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, or let, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and by being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's the question. Paul said, have this mind in you. Well, is that mind in you? Do, is that your mindset this morning? Do you count others in this body as more significant than yourself? Do you have the mindset that never, 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 ever looks to accommodate sin or legalism or license, but always looks to the godly interests of other believers? You can only do that if you have the mind of Christ. You can only have the mind of Christ if you know Jesus as your Lord and Master and Savior. So that's the question behind the question is, do you know Him? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Master and Savior?
Has there ever been a time in your life where you made a conscious decision to turn from your sin and your selfishness and your accommodation to sin and turn to Jesus in faith believing? Has there ever been a time in your life that you know that that happened? If not, the Bible says that today is the day of your salvation. All you have to do is repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and turn to Jesus as your Lord and Master and Savior. If you have any questions about how to do that or how to walk through that or you want to just talk to me about it, then just come forward during the invitation and talk to me about that. However it is, God has called us to elevate others above ourselves. He's called us to have the mind of Christ. That can only happen if Christ is in our heart.